listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Thanks for moving the pulpit back. I was getting nervous for a second there. I'm really thankful uh, for our kids leading us in worshiping the Lord this morning. I want to continue to uh, lead us in considering the Word of God and the beauty of the Gospel uh, by looking at Philippians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, Philippians chapter 1 will be in verses 3 through 11. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad uh, to be able to open up God's Word together this morning. So I want to pray for us while you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, and then we'll read the text, and uh, I've got a few points to make. Um, Father, we do thank you for this truth that you know everything about us. I mean, there's just not an element of our lives that you are unfamiliar with. And on the one hand, that is so encouraging. That is such a blessing to know that you are sovereign over all things and that you care enough about us to know everything about us. You made us. You formed us. But at the same time, that that fact that you have created us means that that we owe our every being to you and every element of our lives. And and as we look at our own hearts and our own minds, we are painfully aware very often how we do not give you everything that we have. And yet you know it all about us. Father, that should cause us to tremble and fear. But because of the gospel, because of your son Jesus, you have known everything about us, and continue to love us in such a way where you have redeemed us from even the worst aspects of who we are. And Father, we thank you for that. We, we want to gather around your word with that in our minds and hearts this morning. Pray that you would bless us as we consider your grace, as we consider the truth and the joy of the gospel, and as we look for reasons to find joy in one another. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, verses 3 through 11, rather. I want to read for us, uh, picking up in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. This is Paul's words to the Philippian church. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is God's word to us. And and you notice that this, this passage that Paul has written here is a very simple introduction of this very, I mean, there's, there's a lot more going on in this letter to the Philippian church. But Paul wants them to know, before he gets to anything else, 
what his thoughts are about them, and not just his thoughts about them, but what his prayers are for them, what his prayers look like. And so there are three things here that I want us to see in this text this morning. First is the motivation of Paul's prayers for them. Second is the aim of Paul's prayers. And third, the confidence of Paul's prayers. The motivation, the aim, and the confidence of Paul's prayers for them. And my prayer for us is that it would be instructive as we seek to serve and care for one another better. And as we seek to live out the gospel that we, um, that, that by which Jesus has redeemed us. As a people, so first, let's look at the motivation of Paul's prayers. And and in thinking about this, I want you to look at the really the exhaustive nature of how Paul prays for them. In verse three, he says, "In all my remembrance." So every time he thinks of them, he thanks God. Every time he thinks of them, he thanks God. Verse four says that always in every prayer. For you all, he prays with joy. There's, there's, he's holding nothing back. I mean, there is no hesitation in Paul's praying for them. Every time and for all of them, whenever he prays, he always prays with joy. He is always giving thanks to the Lord. Not sometimes. Uh, it doesn't ebb and flow in this in this. Uh, clear in the wording here. It, there's, there's no changing or shifting. Paul is always finding reason to be thankful and joyful about the Philippian church. I don't want to get too heavy too quick here, but I think it is worth this very important question. If you or I wrote this prayer, this passage, on a note card and gave it to fellow church members, would they believe you? Maybe a better question, would you, would you believe you? Like, if you wrote that down on a card and handed it to people, would you be rolling your eyes at yourself? It's an important question for us to ask. And maybe a better question is, okay, how, how can our prayers look this way? How, how can we pray for one another and think of one another more along these lines? Now, there's a chance that First Baptist Philippi was just worth getting really excited about. And Paul had no reason whatsoever to ever be worried or bothered about them. But I think it is more likely that Paul's thanksgiving and joy over them actually went a lot deeper than that. Uh, that, that, it, that it was a sustained joy and thanksgiving despite the circumstances, despite what may have been going on in the church or in their interpersonal relationships. So why do Paul's prayers look this way, and how can our prayers look the same? I think the answer lies in the motivation of his prayers, which is that Paul sees the Philippians as participants with him in gospel ministry. Paul sees the Philippians as participants with him in gospel ministry. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at verse 5, once again, he says, I thank God for you. I pray with joy for you. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of their partnership. Now, what, what does this partnership look like? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, right at the end of this letter. He brings up their partnership once again. And if you look at verse 14, he says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So this partnership, at least in this circumstance, looks like the Philippian church sharing the load of gospel ministry with Paul. They share in his burdens, they share in his hardships, the difficulties that he is faced with on a regular basis, and they also share in the blessings that they have received. They're, they're quick to provide for him whatever he may need to continue the work of proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. This isn't just a relationship of convenience. It's one that is marked by mutual service and care for the sake of the gospel. That is the distinguishing mark of this partnership between Paul and this local Philippian church. The key is to understand that, that their desire is to glorify God through fruitful and faithful gospel witness. That's the key behind this partnership that they have. That, that's what's fueling this partnership of theirs with Paul. Philippians 4, picking up in verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, I'm not as concerned about how much you give or even that you give so much as I want to delight in the fruit that increases to your credit. He goes on, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Not to Paul, but, but to the Lord. And my God, he says, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In all of this, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this partnership is it's more than just an investment of financial resources. Uh, the, this church and Paul, we could say likewise for them, they care deeply for the witness of the gospel that is born out in one another and through one another. That's, that's what this partnership looks like. How else are they participants together in gospel ministry? In verse 7, he describes the kind of confidence that he has for them as he prays, and it is rooted, he says, in this, that you are all partakers with me of grace. So on the one hand, they're participants, in, or they're, they're partners in the gospel, and then on the other hand, or likewise, they, they are partakers with Paul of grace. Now, what, what does this grace look like? He goes on immediately to describe the circumstances in which he looks at them and sees nothing but the grace of God. Are you ready for how exciting and awesome this particular form of grace is? Paul says, you have been with me in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, we, we think of imprisonment, in Paul's case, as a real reason to maybe kind of beat your chest with excitement and boldness and confidence. Look at what the Lord is doing through us and the, the things that, man, we're being, we're being persecuted by the world. We should be bold and, and courageous here. But, but that's not exactly how being imprisoned has to look. Uh, being imprisoned, especially in Paul's case, you're, you're taken out, you're, you're put away, you're, you're under lock and key somewhere, you have no influence, you have no ability to, to go around, you, you have no ability to really do anything particularly grand and meaningful and obvious. There's a sort of shame that is tethered to imprisonment where, where you're, you're, you're on the outskirts, you're on the edges of people worth knowing. And the Philippians, Paul says, they... They have not grasped hold of that. 
But instead, they, they have linked arms with Paul all the more. And Paul sees this as evidence of the Lord's grace in their lives. Once again, because they're so much more concerned with gospel witness, gospel fruit in and through one another, that it overshadows the suffering that they've experienced together or that they witness in the life of Paul. These are not fair-weather friends. They are fellow sufferers and recipients of grace together with Paul. And I want you to see the emboldening effect that this has. Maybe you've, been a, maybe you've experienced this for yourself. I, I know I have, where you witness the suffering uh, that may be going on in another brother or sister's life, or where you share in suffering together in some way, facing some particular hardship or difficult circumstance together, how the Lord uses that suffering or those trials or difficulties to actually draw you closer to himself, and not just to himself, but to one another. There's an emboldening that takes place as the Lord brings his people together, even through trials and suffering, but as means of his kindness and his grace towards them collectively. And it stirs up the church, it stirs up his people to bear faithful witness and bear fruit of the gospel in their lives and through their churches. See, Paul sees them as partners in gospel witness and partakers of gospel grace. And this isn't because of their affinities, the the social status that each of them have. Maybe it's not because of the politics that they hold to or the personalities that they bring to the table. It's not even because of the personal spiritual benefit that these people might bring to Paul in and of itself. That's not the source of Paul's affection for them. Rather, Paul sees them above all as linked together inseparably by the gospel, and by the mission that the Lord has tasked his people with of proclaiming, bearing witness to the gospel in the world. Paul's excitement, his love for them, is really rooted in the fact that the Lord's work is evident in and through them. Uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks similarly of this church in Corinth, If you turn there, chapter 1, verse 26, and a few verses down, he says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Going down to verse 30, because of God, however, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's pride and joy, his boasting in the Philippian church, isn't in anything about them. But his boasting in them, his love for them, his pride in them, is rather a boasting in the Lord and his work through them. He is is bearing witness to the grace of God through this church in his own life and in the world. So, here's kind of a a follow-up question to the question I initially led off with. Do we see one another as partners in the gospel and partakers of grace like Paul does? Uh, It's really easy, and and I want you to kind of assess your own mentality, even right now, even this morning as you were walking into this building. I want you to think about everything from the moment you walked through the front door into your seat and sat down and, and then diverted all of your attention to the front of the room I want you to think about this for a minute. How, how, 
how easy is it to, to just file in and see one another as, as really just members of some sort of club? Or to, to come in and really see one another as fans of like the same team? Now listen, I am uh, a fan of, of several teams. Uh, and lately, it's been great to be a fan of the teams that I'm a fan of, okay? Uh, for, for several years now, for several reasons, it's been a good thing. I'll go to football games or baseball games and sit down around other fans of these teams, and, and very rarely, I mean, there's a, there's a camaraderie that comes about when you're sitting elbow to elbow with somebody who's cheering on the same players or teams or or booing the same bad calls or whatever. There's a camaraderie that comes about through that. But, but let me just go ahead and tell you, I, I have never left a game and thought to myself, I want to see that guy again. And part of it is because it's always hot in these environments, and, you know, there's a whole host of reasons. Nevertheless, don't, we can't see one another in this way. What, what, what Paul is describing here is something that goes well above and beyond the sort of superficial camaraderie that, that, that might be you know, linked to being a fan of the same team or, or, or whatever the case may be. Paul is describing something here that, that is so much more. The gospel makes us into more. It calls us to more. And, and the gospel unites us with a common goal which is to make Christ known in the world. And I say the world, and that maybe sounds like far away places, but the world really starts like right here in your immediate vicinity, right? So the, the, the call that we've been given together, not just as individuals, but together, is to bear witness to the gospel, to be participants together in gospel witness and, and ministry in the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says that all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that, is, that is our identity in Christ. That, that is what he's called us to collectively as a people, not just as individuals, but as a body. That's what he's called us to by just virtue of belonging to the same local church. That together we might be and we might be ambassadors, that we might actually function as, a, as an embassy of the gospel in this world. Jesus took on our sin. He, he did away with it at the cross. 
And he rose again from death, vindicating the justice and righteousness of God and giving to us, imputing to us his own righteousness that we might be reconciled to God and not only to God, but that together we might then proclaim this reconciliation. And so as, as ambassadors of reconciliation, as heralds of this good news, the story of redemption, we're not just looking forward on Sunday to receive the proclaimed word as, as important as that is and as good as that is to cultivate in your own heart, to anticipate Sunday morning. And literally, when you get here on Sunday morning to, and when you do find your seat, to, yes, put all of your attention towards the word of God as it is proclaimed and as we sing it together and as we pray in accordance with it. That's so important. That's where Christian discipleship begins. But that's... That's not, that's not all that we should do on Sunday morning. Not only should we look forward, but we should look around to one another as conduits of that same word. And so you come here on Sunday morning, we come together, we gather together in the name of the Lord, we hear from his word, but we're not just hearing from his word, depositing that information and leaving, but rather we're hearing from his word and together we're, we're bearing witness in one another's lives of the ways that the word is transforming and shaping each of us and the ways in which the word of God then goes forward from us as we together leave this place and go out to the various places that the Lord has called us to. His word goes forward there as well. And that's the gospel partnership and, and partaking of gospel grace that that Paul is describing here. And that's what motivates him to pray for them in the ways that he does. I mean, do you see how this radically alters the way that we think of each other? It means that, that you're, you're not just a teacher or a banker or a doctor. You're not, you're not just a stay-at-home mom. You're a participant in gospel ministry. Maybe a better way to think of this. It's not just that that person is a doctor. It's not just that that person is a veterinarian. It's not just that that person works at Aldi. It is that God has actually given them the ministry of the gospel in all of those spheres. That should shape, that should shape it should transform how we see one another. It should transform how we pray for one another. Until we see each other as gospel partners, we'll evaluate each other in earthly ways. And we won't go to the Lord in prayer, but we'll go to one another with grumbling and bitterness and annoyance, frustration. But when we see each other in a different way, when we see each other as gospel partners, that will directly change us. It's, it's Satan's design to divert the church by dissolving our gospel-oriented perception of each other. When we fail to see each other through the lens of the gospel, that's when the church starts to, to go completely off the rails. But look at what untempered joy and thanksgiving is ours. The, the joy and thanksgiving that Paul describes here when we see each other with gospel lenses. When our expectations of each other aren't rooted in the expectations of this world, but are instead rooted in the hope of the gospel. Think about that. Seeing one another as gospel partners will directly influence not only the tenor, but the content of our prayers, which leads to the second thing that I want us to see, which is the aim of Paul's prayers. We've looked at the motivation. Let's look at the aim, the goal, the objective. 
of Paul's prayers. How do you pray for gospel partners and fellow participants in grace? How, do we, how are we supposed to do that? Well, Paul gives us a really good example here in, in verses 9 through 11. To start with, you pray, we should pray with an eye for hearts and minds. Verses 9 through 11, if, if you've forgotten, it says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, This love here is exemplified by Paul himself, even in this passage. And he says in verse 7, I hold you in my heart. He holds them in his heart. Think of the affection that's bound up in that phrase. I hold you in my heart. He says in verse 8 that I yearn for you with all the affection, or I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. (laughs) That's a statement. Um, Certainly we, we want to strive for that. Have you, ever, have you ever really said that about yourself or about a brother or sister where you think, I, I love you with the affection of Jesus Christ? That, that when, when Sunday morning is over and I go about the rest of my week, it's, it's maybe not every second of the day, but I, man, the Lord brings you to my mind and I, I want to see you, I want to hear from you, I want to know how you're doing. That, that's maybe just the beginning of what Paul is describing here. So this love is, is really exemplified in these things, but, but also this knowledge and discernment that he prays that they would have, this ability to approve, to recognize things that are excellent and worthy of attention and affection. This is more than just a head knowledge. He's not just praying that they would grow in their doctrinal standards. He's not just praying that they would grow in their ability to, you know, parse out the key passages of, you know, Leviticus. He's praying that, that this knowledge that he wants to see in them would work itself out in such a way where, where they know the Lord, where they walk with the Lord in increasing holiness, where they encourage one another to do the same. Man, that, that's such a huge prayer when you think about it. And of course, I think we recognize these attributes greatly serve the collective witness of, of any church that would pray for these things to take, take root in, in the people that make up that body of believers. They, they serve our collective witness. They serve our understanding of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We might add what is excellent. These are the things that Paul prays for. 
This is what he prays for every time he prays for them. And he, he asked the Lord for these things with joy. He asked the Lord for these things with thankfulness in his heart for all the evidence of the Lord's grace in their lives already. And you might ask, what about, what about prayers for well-being? Prayers for provision, you know, supplication from the Lord. Uh, are those not okay prayers to pray for one another? Um, no, of course those are good prayers. Uh, we see throughout all these letters, throughout all the Bible, the need for God's people to pray for one another in, in very tangible, urgent ways. I'm not saying that that's not okay or that's somehow less spiritual. That, that's not my point. This passage even here in Philippians chapter 1, it's not prescriptive in the sense that this is the only way you should pray, but, but I think it is instructive and it is exemplary. It's a model for us as we relate to one another. We should ask ourselves, if we never pray this way for each other, why don't we? That's a really important thing for us to evaluate. There is a joyful privilege that is ours. This is, this is a gift from the Lord that we might seek and ask for the Lord's sanctifying work in one another's lives. Do you see that? That, that is a privilege. I think sometimes we think of prayer as a burden. We think of praying for one another as a task, an obligation. Oh, I should do this. Or I haven't done this. I really need to do this. Now, there, there is a joy that is bound up in this. Paul himself is an example of it in this passage. There's a privilege that is ours as fellow brothers and sisters, and especially members together of this local church, that, that the Lord gives us that we might pray for his work in each other's lives. It's not it's not a failure. It's not judgmental to ask the Lord to make others more like him. Maybe you think, well, that kind of means that I'm saying that they're not as like them as I think they should be. Yeah! Yes. Yes. That is true of 100% of the people that you will ever meet this side of eternity. They are, they are going to, in some way, fall short of the glory of God in their own personal lives. And you, you will as well, and you will benefit greatly when someone else bites that bullet and prays for you that you would become more and more like Christ. Oh man, what a privilege that we get to do that for one another, and, and, and how often we forfeit that privilege to our own detriment and to our, to our own lack of joy. Husbands, is this how you pray for your wife? Wives, is this how you pray for your husband? We're not just praying for health or praying for provision. We're praying for faithfulness in suffering. You see how seeing one another as gospel partners and as ambassadors of the gospel in this world, it, it gives us more things to pray for. It doesn't, doesn't totally change everything that we might pray, but it gives us an eye for things that, that go deeper, that are even more foundational in ourselves. So I'm going to pray that the Lord would bring about healing in someone's life, but I'm also going to pray that the Lord would bind them closer to him in the midst of it, regardless of the outcome. Right. I want to pray for the Lord's provision for somebody, but I'm also going to pray for the Lord that, or that the Lord would grant them patience and joy in the midst of their need. 
I want to pray that the Lord would work around, work out generosity in the life of his people that that, that need might be met in tangible ways. I, I want to see the gospel work itself out in my life and in our lives. Because we're partners. We're partakers of grace together. Underlying all of this, and I love how Paul puts this, and I think, if, I think sometimes we, we can kind of zero in on the soundbite and kind of miss the, the connection to it, but you know, Paul says that, that his praying for them is really an extension of Christ's own affection for them. I mean, let's just think about that. I mean, go, go, go back. Where is it? Where is it? Verse, verse, uh, verse 7? No, verse 8. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's right there in the middle of, of everything that he's talking about, how he prays for them, how much joy he has in them, the thank, thanksgiving that he has in his heart towards the Lord for them. In the middle of it all, he says, no, at the center of this is the fact that, that the affection that I have for you is, is really an affection derived from Christ Jesus. Ah. Oh. If a believer is praying for you, I think this is true. If a believer is praying for you, it is because Christ loves you. All right? Let's not divorce our prayers from the sovereign goodness of the Lord. The the Lord Jesus Christ has ordained things in such a way. He has fashioned his church in such a way that we are extensions of the love of Christ toward one another. That that is our calling. That is the ministry that we share together. Um, Some of the most visceral moments of experiencing Christ's love for me have come through prayers that others have raised to the Lord on my behalf especially ones pertaining directly to my love and knowledge of the Lord. Because there are times where I can't pray those things for myself. But the Lord in his kindness, he directs a brother or sister to lift me up. To lift you up in prayer that his work might be borne out through your life and in your heart. Our hearts are fickle, our minds misunderstand, but when a brother or sister goes to the Lord for us, we can know the affection of Christ that's bound up in that very thing. So what are the things that Christ wants for you and me? If our prayers are really an extension of Christ's affection, what are the things that he wants for us? The the more the gospel drives us and, and determines how we pray for one another, the bigger our prayers will be for one another. And again, I'm not saying that our prayers will be more spiritual, but rather that we will want bigger, better, more eternal things for each other. That, that's the fruit of seeing yourself as really an ambassador of Christ's love to fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Apart from this gospel hope, uh, the prayers that we pray will become stale and lifeless, though. Uh, seeking righteousness apart from Jesus, it, it only goes that direction, which is why we must ground our confidence in the person and work of Jesus as we pray and as we care for one another and as we minister alongside one another. And so the third and final thing that I want us to see in this passage is the confidence of Paul's prayers. And he gives, he gives a revealing timeline here. 
um, in verse 5. <clears throat> he says, because, he says, um, I'll back up. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, Paul, part of his thankfulness for them and his praying for them is rooted in the fact that they have been partners in the gospel, not just generally, but that from day one until today, you've been partners with me in this gospel. There's a reason why. He starts talking about time. He's from past to present, you've been partners in the gospel. Why does he bring this up? It, it is kind of answered for us in the next verse. <clears throat> Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's, thanks, he's thankful for them. He prays for them in large part because they're partners in the gospel and they have been from day one until today. But you don't pray for the past, right? You pray for what hasn't happened. And so he says, but I'm praying for you in large measure because I'm confident, not that you guys will continue to just get better and better, that you guys will figure it out, you're smart, but because he's confident that Jesus, who began this work in them back there on the first day and has gotten this good work going through them up to today, will bring this good work to completion at the day of the Lord. The day when everything is, is judged and evaluated and estimated and seen rightly for what it is or isn't, that day, Paul says, Jesus will bring you to that point. And that's why I'm able to pray the way that I do. I think it's so important. This is maybe the, the simplest point, but it is the most important one for us to grasp. If we pray for one another, but secretly are hoping that, that, that our prayers will just kind of nudge people to be better, do better, that our words of encouragement are really exhortations because we're relying on their own righteousness to carry them all the way home, then we will eventually be very frustrated with one another. We will fail in this task that we've been given. Paul's confidence, however, is not in the Philippians. His confidence is in Christ's faithfulness to complete his work in them. Who made them gospel partners and grace partakers in the first place? It wasn't the Philippians. It wasn't even Paul. But that's the work of the Lord that began all of this in them. And so will the same Christ who died to save us fail to finish his work? No. <laughs> The answer to that is no. He will not fail. He will absolutely succeed in what he has set out to do in his people. And, and so the reason Paul prays for them is because of Christ's love for them, because of Christ's faithfulness to them, which gives a really different meaning to Paul's earlier words where he says that I pray for you with the affection of Christ himself. He's not just saying I love you like Jesus loves you or I love you as much as or maybe approximating something like the love that Jesus has for you. No, he's saying I love you with the affection that Jesus has for you. 
My love for you is an expression of the beginning, middle, and end, bringing you all the way to completion, faithfulness and steadfastness and love of Jesus for you, even as I pray that you would grow in love and knowledge and discernment. That is an act, that is a work of the Lord in and through Paul to bless and bring about good things in the Philippians. Do you see that? Do you, do you want that for yourself? Man, I, I, I want that to define how I view us. I want, I want to be motivated to pray because of Christ's great love for us. And I want to pray these things knowing that Jesus has sworn he will work these things into and through you and me. I want to pray with that confidence. I want to recognize Christ's sovereign love extended through us in our prayers for one another. So this, this passage, this calling that we have is really nothing less than to see one another in light of eternity. To see one another as the final products of Christ's redemption. Not just works in progress, but to see ahead, to have the kind of downfield vision that says, no, I know where this is going, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and I'm going to live, and I'm going to speak, and I'm going to act in such a way that indicates to this world that I know who this person really is in Christ. And I'm going to pray that they look more and more like what I know them to be, not because I've just got some sort of optimism about them, but because I know who Jesus is, and I know what he has promised to do in the lives of his people. And in that way, there is a bottomless well of joy. Because it's anchored not in ourselves or in one another. It's anchored in Christ. That's the joy and thankfulness of confident hope. So how, how do we cultivate this vision of one another? How do we do that? That's, that's the work that we have. Where we remind ourselves where we are in, so immersed in the truth of the gospel that, that it begins to shape and transform how we see one another, where, where truly it functions as a lens that filters our perception of one another, where I look at somebody, even in their imperfection, even in their sin, maybe even in sin that is a direct affront to me personally, but I, I look at them and I go, okay, but I know who they, who they are in Christ because they have trusted in Jesus. They've put their hope in him, and so I know where they are going, not because they're going to get themselves there, but because Jesus will. And so I'm going I'm to see them that way, and I'm going to pray for them that way that they would become more and more what Jesus has already declared them to be. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to receive the Lord's Supper together. And, you know, the, the supper, the, the feast of Christ that is instituted in the New Testament, but really echoed through the ages in the Old, has always been a thread running through Scripture. There is a, there's a uh, a version of it that we see iterated again and again and again, but we're always looking forward to the, the great final ultimate fulfillment conclusion of, of what it will look like. And so Isaiah talks about the feast of the Lord, and, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge that we're looking ahead towards a greater, a greater feast. I think sometimes, though, we, we look ahead towards the greater feast, and we fail to recognize the, the, the fact that who, who are the guests at this feast? 
in a moment, we're going to receive bread. We're going to receive some grape juice. We're going to take these things and we'll proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus together. But you know that the Feast of the Lamb is so much, so much grander than this, right? I don't mean to dismiss the Lord's Supper. My point is to say that the Lord's Supper is it's still just a shadow of things to come. And just like that bread will give way to a whole banquet, and just like that juice will give way to the greatest wine that has ever been made, so too will the guests at that table transform from beginning to end. Right? I mean, in a moment, we're going to line up and we're going to not know where to go. And the ushers, they'll tell you where to go. You need to look to them. But in a moment, you're going to need to look to them and you'll line up and you'll be standing among people that you know, people that you don't know at all, people that you know really well. You'll know their stories. You'll know the things that they've wrestled with and struggled through. You'll, you'll know a lot of that stuff. You'll know the ways that they've sinned against you. You'll be aware of the ways that you've sinned against them. But you know, there's coming a day where the, the, the Lord's table will look radically different. And, and we will be seated at a table together. I don't think there will be any confusion as to where we need to go. No one will need gluten-free bread or any other sort of modification. None, none of that, right? We'll be gathered together at the Lord's table. And we will look at one another, and we will see one another with awe and amazement. Not because we're impressed with each other. Not, not because we're, you know, just taken aback by the glory that we each sort of have on our... No, that's not what I'm talking about. No, we'll, be, we'll be taken aback, we'll be blown away by the redemptive work of Jesus in each of our lives. And we'll celebrate the Lamb together. That, that's what Paul is talking about here. As he prays for them. With the affection of Christ. As he looks ahead towards the day of the Lord. And rests in confidence knowing that the Lord will bring about his good purposes in his people. That's, that's what drives him to pray. And that's what should drive us to pray. Not ourselves, but the, the beauty and wonder of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we confess this is, these are high and lofty things. These are things too great for us to comprehend. We know our own hearts, we know one another, and, and we fail very often to see one another in light of the gospel, but I pray that you would help us to, to see one another through the lenses of your word through the lenses of the gospel, that we might delight in one another, pray for one another, seek your good and sanctifying work in one another's lives because we are partners in the work you are doing in this world of redemption. So Lord, give us joy. Make us increasingly thankful for one another and help us to look for and exalt Jesus in and through our church. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.